0: music tonight um, would you please open up your bibles again to first samuel chapter two as we come to learn from god's word together let's pray and ask him for his help father we thank you that your word has much to teach us would you by your spirit teach us tonight Would you open up our hearts and our eyes to receive from you the truth that we so desperately need to hear? Would you help us to live lives in response that glorify you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, other week up at New Horizon, I found myself and some of my friends playing this silly yet timeless game of Would You Rather? maybe you've played it before. It's, it's a silly but fun compare and contrast game, usually between two bizarre options. And what, basically what you have to do is you have to choose what option you would have to go for in this wildly hypothetical world where you have to choose. For example, my personal favorite, if you had to choose, would you rather live in the pouch of a giant kangaroo... Or have a pouch on your belly in which a tiny kangaroo lived it's silly but it's you have to weigh up the options now if you lived in the pouch of a giant kangaroo you could probably save money on amenities but there's probably not going to be any wi-fi but if you have a pouch in which a tiny kangaroo lived it might be cute for a while but what would you wear it's, it's a fun game to play because it forces you to compare and contrast Weigh up the pros and cons of each side in order to see, ultimately, which side is better. First and second Samuel don't pick quite as bizarre options uh, for their compare and contrast game. But that's what the authors of these two books, or really one big book, do the whole way through. The authors play compare and contrast, forcing us to answer the question of what lifestyle we'd rather live. Now now to boil it down to just a compare and contrast with the message being be like the better character is obviously not the message of Samuel. But the book uses comparison and contrast to show us the real message of the story. To show us our sin. To show us God's grace. To get to the heart of the story and to challenge us the readers in how we ought to live. And how we ought to worship God a holy god it begs a question what way would you rather live Uh, the most obvious example in the larger story of Samuel as a whole is probably the contrast between two kings you've got godless king Saul and godly king David but you've contrasts the whole way through, you have Saul and his son Jonathan, you have Jonathan and David, you have Samuel and Eli, you have Hannah and Peninnah, it goes on And chapter 2 is no different. As the focus in Samuel shifts from the moral bankruptcy of the nation to the spiritual bankruptcy of the religious, chapter 2 forces us to see a comparison and a contrast between Samuel, a boy given to the Lord to serve the Lord, and the sons of Eli, men taking from the Lord. To serve themselves. And the message of the sons of Eli has much to teach us on how we ought to live. This is where they take center stage in the story. Other than their subsequent death, which is mentioned in chapter 4, and one piece of information that we get from them in chapter 1, chapter 2 gives us basically all of our information on these two men. And as we've seen already, as we've read through the passage, it's not good. Tonight we're just going to work our way through the passage. It kind of divides itself nicely into three parts. You should be able to hopefully see that from the text in front of you and how your Bible is divided up. If you read from the ESV, there are generally three subheadings for this section of text. NIV divides it more into two, but you'll see as we go along. As we go along, you'll see that there's the rebellion of the sons. There's the rebuke from Eli, and there's the rejection of the household. There's rebellion, rebuke, and rejection. Uh, The first section, verses 12 to 21, maybe more properly, verses 11 to 21, details the son's rebellion. I, I say that this section probably more properly starts in verse 11. Because verse 11 gives us the contrast to what will follow. It gives a picture of God's grace, the hope of Israel. A boy of purity ministering to the lord in the presence of eli the priest we're not given more information of what samuel's doing at this stage but you can see that the contrast between verse 11 and verse 12 is immediate and stark the boy samuel verse 11 ministering to the lord straight into verse 12 now the sons of eli were worthless men they did not know the lord Regardless of your English ability, if we had a GCSE English paper to sit asking for a compare and contrast essay between those two verses, we could probably all manage a pass, I think. These men are described as worthless. You know, the Bible's full of pretty strong language, but I, I think that's up there in terms of describing people, isn't it? Like, what does someone have to do to be described as worthless? Worthless. Few of us here would probably speak of our mortal enemies even in that way. You might say, she's not my cup of tea. You might say, he's not a bad lad, but we just don't click. The extreme in Northern Ireland, they do my head in. But, but worthless? That's really strong language. Worthless. Uh, the term here in the Hebrew translated as worthless, it literally means sons of Belial. And, and that means to be an agent of destruction in scripture it's applied to those who incite the violence who are sexually immoral who abuse their power and lie before god the term's actually already been used once in first samuel back in chapter one where hannah uh, begs eli who thinks her to be a drunk woman when she's actually praying chapter one verse 16 hannah asks eli to not regard her as worthless this woman of faith who knows God deeply is contrasted by this term with these two worthless men who don't know God at all. Why does God's word describe these two men as worthless? Well, two things their rebellion and the arena in which their rebellion takes place. Chapter one verse three tells us that the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phineas were priests. As priests, that meant that they held a position of authority, spiritual authority over God's people. And verse 12 tells us they didn't even know the Lord. They didn't have that deep, personal knowledge of the Lord in which faith and life is found. Knowledge that is a necessary prerequisite of spiritual authority. And so they were in a position of authority they didn't deserve to be in. But more than that, they abused their position. They deeply abused their authority. If I were to ask you, what is God given authority for? What, what is the purpose of it? How would you answer that? Maybe even take a second, take a moment to think about that and answer it in your own head what is the purpose of God-given authority? You might say to set an example. You might say to lead, to be a strong figurehead, to be someone to look up to. But Scripture tells us, specifically in the example of Jesus, but almost counterintuitively, the purpose of God-given authority is service the sons of Eli, they didn't know God and they didn't want to know God and so they rebelled against God's plan and design for authority and instead they used their position not to serve others but for self-service, for personal gain. It's one of the gravest of sins, abusing spiritual authority. And in this we see the significance of sin, its destructive nature, how much God despises, utterly despises sin. It's it's an attack on a holy God. Instead of obeying God's clearly set out rules for how priests ought to behave with regards to offerings and sacrifices and food, Hophni and Phinehas thought best to draw up their own rules. You know, God isn't ambiguous about this Leviticus 7 verse 34 and Deuteronomy 8 13 they detail what is to go to the priests for food and from what animals when certain offerings are made these rules aren't vague they're really clear some food from some animals is to go to the priests that is a privilege for people in their position but it's not to work like this you see that in verses 13 to 14. They would send their servant on a steak hunt every time someone made an offering. They got as much meat on a three-pronged fork as possible. And this isn't like a, a dinner fork where you could maybe get one or two hunks of uh, meat from a stew on it. This is a large three-pronged skewer boy that they took for themselves that would feed them for dinner. What was meant to be God's, they took for themselves themselves and more than that verses 15 to 16 tell us read it with me moreover before the fat was burned the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing give meat for the priest to roast he will not accept boiled meat from you but only raw and if the man said to him let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish he would say no you must give it now and if not i'll take it by force this is really significant because since the time of Abel's offering back in Genesis chapter 4 the fat portion of the meat was regarded as the very best. And because it was the best part of the meat it belonged to God and only to God. There were laws surrounding this. Leviticus three seventeen tells the priests they must not eat blood <laughs> Or fat, and the 7, seven twenty-five tells the priest that anybody who does eat the fat portion that belongs to God, they should be expelled from the company of the people. Such was the sin of these two men; they deserved to be kicked out from their people. In taking what was God's, they abused their position. They rebelled against God's law and will and way, and they treated the Lord with utter contempt. Verse 22 also tells us they slept with a woman in the tabernacle, a place where God's people were supposed to enter his presence. That is horrendous behavior from anyone, let alone a priest, who was to serve God and his people. An absolutely horrible picture has been painted of these two men. And... Not only is it contrasted with Samuel in verse 11, but it's immediately contrasted with the image of Elkanah and Hannah, people who give their son to the Lord, coming to offer sacrifice. In verse 21, the boy Samuel again, growing in the presence of the Lord. There are two very different ways of living. It makes it clear, God, God hates sin. An abuse of power he, he hates when people use their position to do life on their own terms to even do worship on their own terms he hates when those in positions of authority take for themselves what belongs to God or when people in authority withhold from God what is rightly his this is a a stark warning i think for those in christian leadership today especially leaders within the church of jesus christ position and authority has been given to you not to abuse not to get your own way not to have everybody else come into line with your preferences never to enforce as necessary that which scripture doesn't dictate but he's given you authority to serve. To humbly serve. Not to be domineering as 1 Peter 5.3 tells us. But instead to be examples humbly serving the flock of Jesus Christ. And if you're not in an obvious position of ordained Christian leadership tonight, which is most of us, the message still applies even as we lead in ways that we wouldn't even see as leading, when we get alongside one another, are we actively aiming to point others to Jesus, to enable them to see how great and wonderful and majestic Jesus is? Are we trying to serve others as they seek to follow Jesus? Or are we trying to point others to ourselves? so that they can appreciate really the greatness of me and how great the way I operate is. This is something I've had to wrestle with this week. I think it's something we need to wrestle with as a church. If you are in authority and you use that authority for your own glory, God's not okay with that. He takes authority and sin in authority seriously. And that's why Eli's sons are described not as just not my cup of tea, but as worthless. We need to be aware that like them, that in and of ourselves, we're all kind of like that. By ourselves, we are self-focused, self-glorifying, self-serving individuals who want to please ourselves and love ourselves and enjoy ourselves. And without intervention, that makes us in and of ourselves worthless but Keith and Christian Getty they have a a class song that speaks spiritual truth and it's called my worth is not in what I own Andrew was actually playing it as I came into church this morning and in that song they sing this Two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness my value fixed my ransom paid at the cross Hophni and Phinehas were two worthless men who refused to hear about their own rebellion, verse 25 tells us. And so they died, worthless men, marked only by their rebellion. Verse 26 actually tells us it was God's will for them to put them to death, which doesn't in any way actually diminish their responsibility Over the rebellion at all. They died worthless men. Before a sovereign holy God. Because of their active rebellion. But if you are in Christ Jesus. Today. Your rebellion doesn't have the final say. If you have called out to Jesus Christ in faith, that's available to you today, tonight, if you haven't already, you are no longer worthless despite your unworthiness, but you have infinite worth and value because you have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus, a sacrifice that you didn't deserve, a sacrifice that you can't even take hold of by yourself unless it's given to you by the Lord himself. If you are in Christ, you are of great value to the Lord of heaven and earth. And so Philippians 1.27 exhorts us to only let our lives be, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as like Samuel verse 21, we grow in the presence of the Lord. We've seen the son's rebellion. And verses 22 to 26 brings us to Eli's rebuke. Verse 21 ends with the young man Samuel growing in the presence of the Lord, contrasting immediately with verse 22, which says, Now Eli was very old, an up-and-coming spiritual leader compared to an outgoing and effective one. And as as you read this story, you might think that on the face of it, it seems like Eli is doing the right thing here. He goes and he rebukes his sons for their behavior. But when you dig a little bit, really it's, it's actually kind of soft. It's weak, and ultimately it's futile. Verse 22 tells us that Eli kept hearing about his son's antics. And that indicates that he's been hearing about this for quite a long time. And so their behavior has been going on for quite a long time on well, And even when the man of God later comes to Eli, in verse 29, he says that Eli has shown scorn to the Lord and how he has honored his sons above God by allowing them to carry on with their behavior. Eli has turned a blind eye for a long time. His rebuke seems to be well-intentioned, but it falls short, really short, of where it should be. He asks his sons, "'Why do you do such things?' He brings up their reputation and how the news of their behavior is spreading like wildfire. He even warns them of God's judgment, verse 25. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? His point being that if people fall out, as it were, others can help intervene with that. But if someone sins against God, no one can intervene On one hand, you can say, fair play to Eli. He's actually got around having a word with his two sons. And that's probably not an easy thing to do. But really, he's failed them. And he's failed the people who his sons were supposed to be serving all these years massively. You see, he's failed to actually do anything about their behavior. He's taken no practical steps to bring an end to their sinful behavior. He has allowed them to carry on in their position. He has not carried out (laughs) discipline, which is his job, not just as a father, but as a spiritual leader. At the very least, he should have removed his sons from their positions of authority in the priesthood, as he could have done. And that would have put an end to the polluting of sacrifices. It would have stopped the authority being abused. It would have been good for the people as a whole. But instead, he's done nothing. And it would seem that he's done nothing all their lives up until this point, up until the point where he finally rebukes them. And because they haven't ever had a rebuke, they don't listen if you contrast actually eli's rebuke here with how he rebuked hannah in chapter one for being drunk when she wasn't but praying he actually goes really easy on his sons in chapter one he gives hannah practical steps to not be drunk here he merely just says to his sons why do you do this this is a reminder for us that words need to be accompanied by action For us to simply question the behavior of others, either to them or more likely behind their backs, is simply not good enough and more likely or not it's sinful. Words without action show that we love being right more than we love righteousness. It's easier to look at the way someone is behaving and condemn it than it is to go hand in hand with them side by side and lead them to Christ and Christ-likeness. If we are to, for example, love those in our congregation who are drifting away from church and church involvement, and therefore most likely Jesus, it's not enough for us to note in passing that it's happening. But we've got to shift through the gears and do something about it. I need to hear that myself. We need to meet those sorts of people for coffee, offer to pick them up and bring them to church, introduce them to other people who can encourage them within our fellowship and their faith. We need to practically love and pursue these sorts of people. Now, if you're a parent, or even if you have involvement with kids, whether that's in organizations or in family life, it's not enough to, like Eli, condemn or question behavior without action. It's not actually loving to do that at all. If we live like that, we love ourselves more than we love our kids. We need to be people who take loving action. Who set our kids down when they mess up and talk things through. Talk about how the gospel has something to say about not just their sin, but our sin. And work out how, through loving discipline, the help of the Holy Spirit, how we can put sin to death. And live for God. And the example that we have is that we have a, a Savior who didn't come into the world to condemn the world with words, although he spoke and spoke a lot of good stuff. But Jesus came to save through the actions of his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection and ascension. And we need to follow that example in how we deal with sin. We need action to accompany our words. We've seen the sons' rebellion and how, unlike them, we don't need to remain worthless. We've seen Eli's rebuke and how loving action needs to accompany our words. And finally and briefly, we see the rejection of Eli's household. We, we move from Samuel, growing in stature and favor with the Lord in verse 26, immediately to the rejection of the household of Eli. Verses 27 to 36. Ultimately because Eli honored his sons above the Lord by not rebuking them, by not removing them from authority, his household would be rejected. He might not have said that he honored his sons above the Lord, but by allowing those unfit for spiritual leadership to continue for personal reasons, functionally he did. And so a prophet was sent to Eli to speak on behalf of God, to reject Eli's household from the priesthood. Verse 28 implies that Eli was a descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother, to whose household God had promised the privilege of serving as priests. But Eli and his house had abused such privileges, and so God rejected them. This rejection is pretty conclusive. Uh, Verse 30, the man of God says, and follow along with me. Therefore the Lord... Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on all Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And as you read through the story of First and Second Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, this all comes to pass. Hophni and Phinehas were killed on the same day, chapter 4, verse 11. Eli died upon hearing this news, chapter 4, verse 18. All of Eli's other descendants were slaughtered at the hands of Saul in chapter 22. Apart from one man, Abiathar, who was spared he would ultimately be removed from the priesthood by Solomon. And when this happens, 1 Kings 2.27 notes, this fulfilled the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. Abiathar was removed from the priesthood and he was replaced by a high priest who was faithful to God and served his people well. Zadok the priest. Fulfilling verse 35 which says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind. And I will build in him a sure house and he shall go out or in and out before my anointed forever. Eli's house was fully rejected. But ultimately in the rejection of Eli's rebellious household and the promise of a faithful priest We're pointed not just to Zadok but the great high priest Jesus Christ who atones for every sin. Every sin because he did perfectly according to what was in the father's heart and mind. And so if you're in Christ Jesus if you belong to that great high priest God does not punish you for your sins rejection isn't yours to face yes there might be consequences to your sin but it's not punishment from god because christ is a priest who has taken judgment on himself who was rejected by man and bore every sin and a just god can't punish sin twice Jesus is the one who takes our punishment, who completely atones for our rebellion, who rebukes us well by offering us salvation in himself and does not reject us if we belong to him. Jesus does not and cannot reject you if you're his. This this story forces us to play, compare, and contrast. Ultimately, it invites us to play a game of would you rather. And the question is this, would you rather live life with or without Jesus? What makes the most sense? And this isn't some crazy hypothetical world where the answer doesn't actually impact your life. It's intensely practical, it's very real, it's of internal significance. Like Eli's sons, will you choose rebellion and rebuke and rejection? Or will you accept Christ's invitation in which you have worth and salvation and belonging? What would you rather have? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because of the cross, we can confess our worth and our unworthiness. You have welcomed us in as your own. You have saved us, and you will not reject us. You will keep us till the end. Father, would you help us to see that life worth living is lived in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.